I can't come here and die. I can't come here and lose. Got all this shit on my mind. Like, what the fuck I'm a day? Work ain't paid me in time. My baby just ripped me my mood. Her too just cut off my line. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Echo Chamber. I'm Jade. And I'm Ez. And today we're joined by a special guest drill expert, journalist. Youth work extraordinaire. <laughs> yeah, I'm that. Yeah, Jade's like, come on, do well. <laughs> no, you're, you're really going for that. And you got it right. I would have said the same thing. Now we're joined by a real G, Kieran Farpar. Yeah. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for having me. I'm a youth worker and a writer. I'm based in South London. I do lots of community work and, and mentoring and done various bits of youth work over the last five years around London and that's sort of my specialism practically on the ground and then I write about um, issues affecting young people and social issues that I think are worth giving a bigger voice to those two things kind of go hand in hand so yeah pleasure to be here yeah we're very grateful to have you on today Kieran I know Kieran through Franklin who's been on a previous episode he's also a real G I met Kieran some years back through Franklin our kind of connection was based around the youth work that we were doing and yeah just like since then have followed Kieran's work Kieran's an amazing writer so have read a lot of like Kieran's social commentary was fortunate to be covered by Kieran yeah my youth work practice was um covered by Kieran in in an article that he did yeah I was really glad for because um again got the voice of young women that I work with out there as well so Jade and I were speaking, so we very intentionally wanted to have a separate episode talking about allyship from non-white people. <laughs> and we thought that it would be very important because that looks very different, but also the relationships between non-white communities and white people are very different. So yeah, we thought that it would be really important to like flesh that out. We thought Kieran would be a dope person to have that conversation with based on like we'll we'll get into this properly and ask that Kieran will speak for himself. But like just say I think I feel that Kieran occupies a very unique space um with that British culture. My view and like how I feel like Kieran's approached his work, his both his youth work and his writing I think has demonstrated very clearly just the level of thought that allyship requires and just the level of constant like reflection, reflective practice throughout his throughout his practice, which um which I think would be dope to talk about. But yeah, we said today that the opening question would be, what do you think of the term BAME? So I really don't like the term BAME. I also don't like the term POC. The reason why is because I feel like it really conflates several communities' issues or um, experiences of society, and they're not the same. So yeah, I really am not a fan. With the current agenda and what's going on now, when we're using the term BAME, so when all of these institutions are using the word BAME and POC, it takes away from the core of why this whole agenda started. And that's not to say that the work that is being done shouldn't then filter out to looking at other communities and other minority groups not saying that but I think that it's getting really lost very quickly so I think that when it goes from global outrage a black man was murdered by a police officer who knelt on his neck to then 
it now being the BAME community, the BAME community, we lose sight of, we slightly lose sight of what has happened. We slightly lose sight of the community that is at the forefront of what is happening to them by institutions. And I'm not saying that other communities of people are not victims of state-sponsored murder, essentially. But what I am trying to say is we conflate, we lose sight when we use terms like BAME and actually everybody has different needs. People that come under that umbrella, all have, we have different needs and we have different experiences. Yeah, I hate the words BAME. I hate the word POC, BME, WOC. I identify as Black. I identify as Nigerian, actually, first and foremost. Igbo, Black British. <laughs> so if I'm going to wear labels, yeah, those are the three that are most comfortable to me. Yeah, Nigerian, Igbo, and Black British. I echo a lot of what you said, Jade. I feel like I've had a unique experience with the term so I was involved in student politics and I was the black members officer for my university for two years um, in, within my students union and I was saying to Kieran before we started recording that the student movement still very much ascribes to the notion of political blackness and I think that we can't acknowledge black British history so any progress that has happened in relation to the Black British movement has involved other minoritized groups. It's important to acknowledge that. Just looking at that kind of Black British history particularly, there is, I, I feel that there was a point where there was a usefulness, the notion of political Blackness to ideas around kind of BAME, ideas or ideologies around that, maybe not labels. Yeah, and I think that that's important. And I think it still can be important. However, at the same time, in this current moment, I think that BAME is used to disguise anti-blackness. I think that that's what ends up happening, generally speaking, is that um, those terms are used to disguise anti-blackness. I had an interesting encounter this week. <laughs> I had a very interesting encounter this week um, around the notion of like people of colour and ideas about people of colour. Encounters like the one that I had, I'm not going to get into it, but like the one that I had just reinforced for me my reasons as to why I just think this is, is foolishness. Trying to band such a multitude of people under one umbrella, it doesn't work. And what ends up happening for me, black people end up getting the short straw, generally speaking. Maybe predictably, I'm going to be a bit more on the fence. For me personally, I'm very 50-50 with the term BAME. I think what's actually really revealing is that a lot of the time, the term BAME gets described as black and minority ethnic instead of black, Asian and minority ethnic. And I've even done it myself in my writing. I've actually written it out without including the term Asian in it and then like been annoyed at myself. But it actually does represent quite a lot for me when that omission takes place because where I'm gonna defend the term is that it's useful for those of us that identify as people of color or identify as fitting into that broad category um, to feel a part of something that has existed successfully in the past and means something if you simply experience the world as an other, you know, away from the white dominant narrative of society that we do have to face up to and we have to deal with every single day. Now, obviously there's a huge spectrum of different people dealing with that, like other status, like massive spectrum. I'm half white. I pass as white in lots of spaces, depending on what my hair is like. 
Um, I have a middle class accent. You know, if I walk into a pub, a lot of people might think I'm white. And so that is one end of the spectrum. And I realized that I occupy that. Um, and at the other end of the spectrum, there's people who would still fit into the BAME category, but they're experiencing harsh anti-blackness, colorism, you know, institutional racism, um, etc. So whilst I, I totally recognize that it's complex and it, it needs using really responsibly and, and actually unpacking, which I think, you know, we can do now. I think on a very basic level, I find it useful to just, just to feel a part of a bit of a movement on a very basic level. Now, where I'm critical of it is that it taps into what you're saying. The term BAME has been weaponized by white people. It's like this Trojan horse. It's like, it's like this package that gets used as a way of being like, no, we're sorting this out because we're helping BAME people. Or no, like we're dealing with anti-black racism because we're helping BAME people. And that's obviously what's happening right now, right? Like it's being thrown around everywhere. I think that that is when it really breaks down and becomes very damaging. And I then, then I don't feel comfortable with that, that term being used. So on a very personal level, to feel part of a big movement, to feel part of like, I don't look in the mirror and see a white person I identify as not white. And I, and I also see the world as someone that has experienced racism. And therefore, on that very personal, deep emotional level, I feel BAME is like, I feel part of it. But when it becomes actual practice, policy, fighting a fight, on the ground and in institutions that have weaponized the BAME term, I don't think it's useful then. I think then, then it becomes, as you guys have both said, it becomes very not useful. So I, see, I guess I see it as a good thing on a personal level sometimes, but then as a really damaging thing on a, on a like political institutional level, because I think it's just been, it's been appropriated. It's been appropriated. So yeah, I'm, I'm a bit more balanced, I guess, but I still see massive difficulties in using that term and, and problems with it. Kieran, what you said has made me really think, actually allowed me to process something that I think I've been processing for weeks now. So on a personal level, I actually feel like the term BAME in relation to my family may have been helpful at points. I was speaking to my aunt a few weeks ago. She was talking about when she was growing up and her like, just her experiences of um, maybe realising her quote-unquote blackness. She told me for the first time that her dad converted to Islam. And in that time, it was like Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. And so there was a lot of like consciousness and realisation of blackness. My grandmother is half white, or was, she's passed now, half white and half um, Trinidadian Indian. And my aunt was telling me that my granny didn't like her talking about things like that. She didn't like her talking about blackness, pro-blackness, black nationalism. She didn't like her talking about things like that. She didn't like um, my auntie talking about those types of things. And I just think that perhaps a term like BAME, would, because my gran granny didn't describe herself as black um, and she didn't look black either, but maybe a term like BAME would have been a helpful quote-unquote umbrella term that may have yeah like it was something that everybody could have identified as in our family basically so that's really interesting for people that are mixed heritage and existing families where people are you know present differently and stuff but similar to you as I think I very much agree with your sentiment that when we look institutionally it feels that the terms are scapegoats to just ignore what is happening to individual communities on an institutional level. Yeah, so I was going to say, and actually it feeds into what you've just said, there's an acknowledgement 
white people have kind of weaponized the term. I kind of have ideas or questions around whether or not Asian, and when I say Asian, I mean my in my experience, South Asian communities have also in some ways um, weaponized the term. And, and how that happens, I, th- I think it's interesting because again, there's what you kind of see on the internet, and by the internet, I mean like Twitter. <laughs> so there's what you kind of see on Twitter, um, and what like convers- these conversations on Twitter are about, like fame and people of color, and like all of these kind of like ideas. And there's very like, particularly on Black Twitter, there's very like mixed views. Actually, I don't think it's that mixed. I think most people are anti fame, and most people kind of ascribe to the fact that Asian communities don't rate black people and are racist towards black people the the general consensus and then like taking it offline and thinking kind of in my lived experience but also what I know of like Britain it's not as straightforward or it's not as simple as that and it's not a question but it's, it's more of an acknowledgement that yes like white people have recognized the terms but also there is kind of there are there's tensions within I'm very specific like I'm talking kind of very specifically about South Asian communities because that's the reference point that I have um and even then like there's further conversations so in the student movement I'm not even going to get into the student movement because they're all mad anyway however there is like stuff around like who qualifies which groups qualify who do we because it's very much I feel like this this same BME people of colour conversation is very much dominated by like African Caribbean descent and then South Asian communities um, are, are kind of like that's how it's framed um, and then but there are all like there are so many more kind of othered or minoritized groups that don't aren't at the forefront of this conversation at all and then I wonder what their take is on, on this and, and and what that conversation is. I think it's just acknowledging that it's a lot more complex than just like us as in the minoritized and them as in like white people, even though that's kind of what it's meant to represent. I completely agree with the fact that it is also weaponized by South Asian communities and that reflects, I think, a lot of different things on the, again, with if I'm describing a spectrum that I feel like I belong on one end of, I'm not weaponizing it to further hate it's like weaponizing or division it's like it's using the term to self-identify as part of a bigger sentiment of we need to fight for progress as a as a group of people who have certain levels of connections on experience on basis of experience if there are big differences as well and then at the the other end of the spectrum you've got maybe people that like benefit from loads of privilege and also are racist towards black people or you know just generally display a lack of respect towards other cultures, but then are South Asian and then will fit themselves into the BAME category. And that's obviously a problem. I would still fall back on, and this is, I'm still unpacking this, right? So I'd still fall back on the idea that the origins of that weaponization comes from white place. I'd still say that. Like, let me give you an example, and this is going straight into it. Right now, Boris Johnson has just appointed Manira Mirza as the person who is going to look into you know, racial inequality exists in the UK. Now, I have been on a panel when she's been in the audience. I didn't know who she was. She raised her hand. I'm there talking about drill music. I'm talking about youth work. I'm talking about my mentoring with almost exclusively black young men. She puts her hand up. 
And I ended up ignoring the question because it got me so riled up. I was like, I'm not going to reply to this. So I just focused on the other people's questions. She stood up and no fear was just like, don't you think it's because they're black? This was a crazy panel event that I didn't even know the significance of when I signed up to it. But I realized when I got there, it was like this free speech brigade. And I was like, oh my God, this is mad. But it went all right in the end because I felt like I fought my corner. But her, she stood up in the audience and afterwards I was like, who is that? Uh, my partner Yasmin, she was in the audience. And afterwards we were both just triggered by this person's question because she's there as a British Asian asking this question and feeding a narrative in the room predominantly white people in the room that blackness is attached to violence inherently like that like that was what she was implying and she is now the person that has just been appointed by our prime minister to lead this thing now that is weaponization and that is boris johnson choosing her to be that and that is her being someone like Priti patel exactly the same very different styles but a similar sentiment of pull up the drawbridge we've come here we've succeeded the, the, white person, the, the white man in charge picks us to represent ethnic minorities, so we're going to double down and do what we want. You know? And that weaponization is the most dangerous. That's the one that seeps into South Asians then maybe being lazy with the use of the term and being lazy with how they see themselves as well. I think that a lot of it comes down to, to that, and, and that all stemmed from racism as a root thing to, towards whoever isn't white. I'm still unpacking this, but that's just how I feel. I feel like the original weaponization still comes from that, you know? Yeah, there are a lot of dickheads that Boris Johnson has around him that he's using as token BAME people, and they're just proper dickheads. And it's really interesting because even when we use the term Asian as well, at my university, I work in the politics department at a uni, one of the lecturers while we're having these conversations about decolonizing the curriculum he keeps mentioning this same point and i know that it's because people keep referring to this same thing he keeps saying oh chinese people are the least represented group in british politics and it's true i don't recall in all of the years that i studied politics so that's like the last 10 years 12 years i don't think i've ever known Chinese quote-unquote MP or representative in parliament on the other hand I'm thinking what are you talking like why are you saying that what are you talking about but it's because the term BAME gives you license to now start conflating all of these different issues on the topic of British politics as well and what is going on currently I am so frustrated and so concerned as well at what is going to happen under this government and with people like Priti Patel and Mirza just changing, basically just chatting dangerous shit and making decisions. I think it's really, really concerning. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I think it's concerning. I think that they are uniquely dickheadry. <laughs> like they are like you they are like a unique version of dickhead. I think that they kind of like really really embody why how this term can be problematic in a unique dickhead way do you know what I mean it's not like I don't think that that's how it shows up in like everyday interactions um and actually like thinking about I wasn't even going to talk too much in the encounter that I had this week but as we're here we're here but thinking about that encounter I and like just looking at the moment so essentially like that yeah I'm not going to get too into too much detail um because I haven't thought it through and I don't know how to be PC and actually I think it's something that I should probably be PC about if I'm on air so I'm not going to go get into too much detail and Jade stop me if you think I'm oversharing <laughs> 
But there was this incident this week where I had an encounter with somebody who identified as a woman of colour. The conversation was around solidarity with what is happening in this moment in response to George Floyd's murder. I was infuriated by the kind of lack of acknowledgement of their privilege in that encounter. I was furious and I spoke to both of you actually, I spoke to Kieran and Jade and some other people um, just to um, help me unpack and unpick Wagwan basically. For me, in relation to that, what's happening with George Floyd, nobody in the world that does not have black skin, in my view, a policeman will kneel on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds based on the colour of their skin. In my view, and that's not to say that police brutality doesn't manifest in other ways and with other minoritised groups, but I think there is a specific type of violence that black men experience at the hands of the police so when we get into like now we start doing a uh, oppression olympics of oh but i've gone through that and i've gone through that like we're not talking about that right now so in this moment actually the conversation is about blackness and i think that it's important to acknowledge that and i think when people aren't able to acknowledge their privilege in that that is where so stepping away from the politics and that those unique dickheads because most people on the day-to-day most in my like most asian people that i've encountered on the day-to-day they're not they're not pretty telling it (laughs) they're they're not they're not dickheads to that degree however i think that there are ways of like acknowledging privilege not acknowledging privilege kieran you've wrote a brilliant piece in your column for gq you wrote a brilliant piece um which i read yesterday (laughs) And I think it's really interesting. I think we should, I think basically, I think it's really interesting what a lot of the things that you were saying. And I think it showed a very kind of unique stance as an ally with the experience that you've had. And I think it will be good to maybe unpack that a little bit, to unpack kind of what you were speaking about in that and the ways in which like allyship can manifest in your, in one's day-to-day encounters. So I assume you're talking about the Black Lives Matter article that I wrote. Yeah. Yeah. When I decided to write the article, it was off the back of two or three days of, I'm going to say, exhausting internal dialogue, whether I should say something and what I should say. Now, I realise that a lot of people are going through that and um, I'm not unique to that. I think what was a bit maybe unique about my position is that, as you've said, I sort of have this, I've written a lot about and have embedded myself within Black British culture in, on some level because of my youth work, because of my writing. And... Therefore, I was sort of like stuck between these two difficult positions of like, if I say something, am I taking the opportunity from someone else to say something who's more central to the issue? If I don't say something, am I being irresponsible in using my voice, in using what I think is an important position to speak on the current moment and actually cut through to an audience that otherwise won't have access to this conversation? And I decided that the latter was my position. Like, I need I needed to to say something and and that's how that piece came about when I got asked to do it by my editor um it was it wasn't like a quick response it was like a good half an hour long conversation about it and then I sort of yeah spent a few days thinking about my way in I couldn't find a way of starting the article I'm writing a book right now I've got a hundred thousand words written about inequality in London and and a lot of that is to do with institutional racism towards black people that's a main theme so I'm sitting on a lot of knowledge about statistics, a lot of understandings of certain arguments, yet I couldn't find a way of putting that in an article. And then, as, as I describe in the book, literally I went for a jog to clear my head and I bumped into one of the boys who I mentor, one of the closest ones, he's a character in my book. 
I go through from him being the age of 13 to 18 in the book. He's been on a, a crazy journey and I've, I've sort of been on a, a lot of it with him. And I realized this is how I understand the current moment. Like this is actually, this is actually how I understand, like uh, bumping into him, all these thoughts sort of starting flowing through my head of like, that this is how I'm best placed to talk on this as a youth worker. Like as a youth worker that has seen how this society has demeaned and demonized and made it almost impossible for this young man to survive, let alone thrive at school, let alone do anything else, get employed. Like he is, he is just about alive now. As soon as I got home, I wrote the article and I, and I wrote really quickly and it just flowed out because that was my way in. Now that then I think leads neatly onto maybe what your second question is, which is how to practice allyship on a daily basis. Until recently, I haven't really thought of myself as like a quote unquote ally because I just think I am who I am. And that like naturally sort of honors that respect for people in general. But now that, you know, the term ally is, is being used in the current moment more and, and since I've started thinking more explicitly about what I've got right, what I've got wrong, how I can sort of maybe help others to become an ally and having this conversation. The connection point of me bumping into that young man and writing the article and therefore writing something I, that I think is authentic and being explicit like I was at the end of the article of like, look, I'm writing this for different audiences. This is who I am writing this and sitting back. I'm writing this and taking a stand. I think that it reflects a certain level of there needing to be a very human connection in how people are responding to the current moment. And that means that you're not just banking money to a charity. You're not just ordering a book from Amazon because you heard that it's a good book to read to learn about the Black British experience. It means that you are altering your daily life to, to start like understanding and seeing and feeling like the injustice that takes place with regards to race in this country and around the world, but in this country in particular, more sustainably. And yeah, so I think allyship, that practical human connection, I've now developed very, very comprehensively through my youth work. And therefore I could convert that very quickly into an article that's effective. I've got that in my youth work, but I know a lot of people, they don't know how to respond to this current moment, you know? And I feel like, thinking on your personal connection to other people and thinking on how you can practically in person contribute towards the current moment in a progressive way is is the first place to start but it, it goes beyond ordering books it goes beyond posting a black square on instagram and i do wonder how sustainable a lot of these things are going to be so there's a lot to unpack there i suppose my summary would be that like youth work genuinely and and feeling like i've been not without its problems and not without its obstacles i've been generally welcomed by a lot of black communities and and groups of boys girls you know friends to be part of this conversation i feel like that has now it allows me to be in my position now and be an ally there's a lot going on there but i think yeah youth work has been an amazing way into into like realizing that position in the spirit of full disclosure kieran and i had a conversation earlier on this week which was a very like you know when you come off the phone and you just need to sit <laughs> you just need to sit down and just look at your feelings <laughs> um <laughs> yeah or sleep it was there it was just a very like um there was a lot there was a lot of unpacking in that conversation I was honest with Kieran um and I was honest about my reservations so optics like I said I, I didn't read the article 
until yesterday. And I'm someone that I know Kieran. So we, I know I am getting to know Kieran more and more. My kind of introduction to Kieran was very safe. Like, so the person that introduced us is a very kind of like safe person that I trust. That I think that we equally trust and respect. Through Franklin have been around each other socially a little bit. And Kieran's good vibes, isn't it? <laughs> Kieran's good vibes. And Kieran's like, I, yeah, I've always felt that Kieran is good vibes. I don't know Kieran that well. And I think that from an optics, like just like looking at things, when I saw that he'd written an article on this, I had questions and I had questions around, are you best placed to write this article? Could this have been an opportunity to commission a black writer and to pay a black writer to speak on something that directly impacts them? It's like lots of questions to be really honest, yeah. And so what I did was I asked those questions um, earlier on in the week. It was challenging for me for a few reasons because I am aware of Kieran's youth work and practice and just like the way that he lives his life and didn't want to feel so there was like questions in my head about like is who are you to question him is what you're doing fair so there's questions about that there was questions about how it would be received if it isn't fair so I, I, I wasn't sure if it was fair to, to ask the questions I wasn't sure if like based on like the relationship we had there was just so many different things it's like I don't know if this is the right thing to do if I do do this and it's not well received, what are the implications of that? It wasn't an easy thing for me to think about. And again, the conversation wasn't even easy, but something that I think came out of the conversation and really helped me was that actually, um, Bexley being honest and truthful about where I was, it wasn't a right or wrong thing. So it wasn't a, you're wrong for writing that, or I'm wrong for feeling that you shouldn't have, there was just, there was not really like, judgment attached to the conversation as difficult as it was but there was and that created space for for both of us to kind of speak about some of the kind of very personal difficulties that we've experienced in relation to this conversation and I think what the other thing that it did for me was it showed me that actually and again this is this helped me to extend a level of empathy to the person that I've mentioned um who did something that wound me up (laughs) it helped me to extend the level of empathy because actually in this moment we are all being affected by it differently for different reasons we all have a relationship to what is happening George Floyd has impacted us has impacted the world Um, and not just George Floyd but all of the kind of everything that's happening around kind of the Black Lives Matter movement and in fact I step back from saying that Everything that's happening around injustice to black people, institutional injustice to black people, everyone's got a relationship to it, a different relationship. We've spoken to Rebecca. We've done, We've also put out an episode explaining the difficulties around that conversation, but how necessary it was. And now we're here having kind of a different, there's a different lens to what we're saying. There's just lots of food for thought. There's lots that I'm thinking about, about actually as a black person, who is who feels things very viscerally, feels these things very viscerally. The other thing that I want to say, Kieran reached out to me. So Kieran was, and one of the things that actually made me think, oh, Kieran will be a dope person to have this conversation with, was whilst I was having these thoughts or these ideas about was Kieran best place to um, write this article, um, and I'd seen it and I'd not engaged with it, and I was kind of dealing with everything and processing like my own pain around it, Kieran was one of a few people, a few non-black people that reached out to me basically word for word like I'm here I've, like what do you need like I'm here like, like if there's anything you need 
um, in this moment, let me know. It was very genuine. And again, like, like I said, Kieran and I are not best friends, like, but there was like, there was just, I felt the warmth and I felt the like sincerity in him reaching out, which again, helped to open the door for me to feel safe enough to um, explore some of those questions with him. But I felt I also had a responsibility to not make assumptions. Weighing up like the responsibility for on my end to not make assumptions, to ask questions and to do that sensitively. There was a very clear kind of open door to do that and a willingness, which to me demonstrated, which felt like allyship. Broadening it out a touch, what we're talking about, I have been thinking a little bit about the ways in which people who appear or show up in the world um, specifically as like South Asian, the first, the duality of their allyship, which means that it's really important, it becomes really important in the context of like this BAME slash POC stuff. And also, if we look historically in a historical context, so I think that there's a different, I think that this is where there's a divergence. So I think that people who show up in the world with brown skin, their experiences are probably quite different in the USA to what they are in the UK. And I think when we look at the context of the British Empire, historically, brown people were deemed to be more favourable basically as subjects of the British Empire than people with black skin. In the current climate their allyship is really important and there's a duality to their allyship or their responsibility as allies. I think that there is a duality in that they hold a place as a bridge between black people and white people and perhaps being maybe a little bit more palatable to white people who need to hear certain things but also I think that their responsibility also goes into deconstructing the anti-blackness that exists in South Asian communities as well and I think that when we as we were discussing like people like Mirza and and we consider that actually institutions are really gung-ho about this fame and POC label there is important conversation that we need to be having with our allies that show up in the world with brown skin to start looking at or considering their responsibility not only as people that might be a bridge between black people and white people and a slightly more palatable bridge between black people and white people but also as like agents of change in their own communities of people that that have brown skin because anti-blackness in that community maybe stops South Asian people looking at the importance of their position is a big thing and it's and it's somewhat detrimental as well. Keeping it real I feel like an like an intuitive urge to talk to just briefly say before I talk about this that like I agree completely with that that hangover from colonialism of you know let's ship Asians into East Africa to and South Africa to like help us rule the black people that like that hangover of more palatable of of it being like a middleman almost a middlewoman position that's actually sort of how I map out my own position I guess in some ways in terms of the responsibility I have or at least in terms of how I'm just practically useful sometimes because as I said I mean to use that example the article I wrote as an example that article is probably I don't know the re- I don't know the readership statistics but GQ like it's probably a lot of white men reading that article and I knew that 
And I knew that me writing it would get black people and Asian people reading it too. But like, if I can cut through to thousands of, of white people who are reading GQ, then for me in that moment, that's big win, you know, helping them see the world through a momentarily see and feel the world through, through a black young man's eyes and this institutional racism that he faces. So I see that. I think I don't want to run the risk of, this is difficult. I don't want to run the risk of just focusing too much on anti-blackness, even though I think that it is massively important. And it's important in so many ways in that like I've seen, I've heard so many examples of when I've been in British Asian contexts, whether that be in family situations, groups of mates at school, where there's a clear lack of respect for black people. Like some, in fact, I did this exercise the other day where I was, who can I think of from my past, the top three people that I think are most disrespectful towards black people. And like two of them were, were Asian at school. Like that's a problem. Um, and it was always something that made me feel uncomfortable. And I feel like as a teenager, I often challenged it and stood up to it. And I hand on my heart, I know that I never, you know, I never was okay with that. And I feel like I did a job of learning how to not be okay with it in an expressed way. So it's a problem. It comes from colonialism. It comes from also the caste system, you know, dark skinned, low caste Indians have it hard in India and probably a lot of the time didn't even make it across to Europe. So they're not even in this conversation, you know, and it comes from loads of different places. And I think it's disgusting. And I think that it's a complex one to challenge because a lot of that is trickled down from older generations of loads of messed up independence era stuff that comes from anti-imperialism, that comes from like inherited self-hate from colonial landowners and masters. You know, the British really weaponized the caste system to benefit itself and benefit its trade and benefit its rule of the Indian subcontinent and then populate Caribbean islands and parts of Africa with Asian people in order to control black people. So anyway, it's messy. I'm going to say, and I'm going to use this opportunity to say, as part of all of that, and I think it is tied up in it, um, and I think it's an important part of this conversation, and as I think we briefly touched on it the other day, that I'm super hyper aware that before this moment, race and racism towards Muslims, yeah, black Muslims, but also, you know, in the UK, the, the sort of face of, a, of the Muslim in the mainstream press, so to speak, is a brown woman in, in a hijab. My, my partner Yasmin has suffered a lot of racism, like from white men, like a lot explicitly. I suppose why, the reason I mention this is because that pain that she felt, that I felt, that I know exists out there, is a pain that I've tapped into in order to understand this moment. I'm basically adding another layer to it that like, there's an anti-blackness in the Asian community. I am way more knowledgeable about and more positive and, and I feel like constructive about utilizing that anger and energy I have as a result of that, of that racism that I know exists towards brown women, especially from white men as a way of moving forward here. And, and so I'm just, I'm just saying that because I feel like it's intuitively useful to say it in this part of the conversation. And, you know, that's not undermine the importance of anti-black, the, the, how horrible that is that exists. Um, and sorry to ramble, just the last point that I think actually, you know, I've had some really interesting interactions that are attached to anti-blackness in the South Asian communities with black boys when I've done sessions, like youth work sessions. So the one that I always refer to, this happened three times in my career. 
running a discussion group with a group of exclusively black boys and the, the P word pops up. So they'll be like, there's a bunch of packies in East London. There's a, I'm going to go to the packy shop after this and get this and excuse my language for anyone listening, but I feel like it's important to say it because when I heard it and I'm in those sessions, my brain is suddenly exploding with things, right? Like, what do I, how do I come? How do I approach this? How do I approach this? Now I know that a lot of South Asian corner shop shopkeepers will be stereotyping those black boys when they enter their shop. I know that that's a fact. So I understand that that language comes from an experience that that boy is probably experiencing from, and that's tapped into anti-blackness that we've been talking about. But what's really, and this is where I'm going to finish on this point, what's really important for me is to capture the, what I've been able to do in those conversations off the back of that happening. I've been able to have these long, impactful conversations with those groups of boys, you know, boys who half of whom aren't even at school or they're in Prus, people who aren't necessarily amazing at engaging in education just because of the setting I was working in. I've been able to have conversations about racism and about my shared experience of racism with them. And it opened their world up to this new way of seeing language and way of seeing the connection between us. Um, and I think on that note, like that for me, that space, that safe space that as you and I are able to have now off the back of our conversation, that safe space that I've got with certain young people that I've had that conversation with, you know, when, when that word's been spoken, it's deep and it's powerful and it can really move, it can move things forward when you have those honest conversations. Instead of me just getting offended and being like triggered, I'm like, let's talk about this. It's, let's talk about why that word is offensive to me and let's try and help you understand it. And then they all got it. And it's like, I think that that's a model for me practically of, of moving forward in areas of this conversation. No, I think that's dope. And I'm, I'm glad that you said that because I think something that came out of our conversation um, earlier on in the week um, is me thinking about my energy and my approach to allies or people that are trying to be allies. And so, for example, and this is just, again, full transparency here, if I was listening to what you just said with a judgmental lens or through the lens of my pain, I may have interpreted that as a pivot. That I may have interpreted that as, yeah, you've just pivoted, like we're talking about this, you've just now pivoted and you've put, put forward your agenda, yeah? And that's, again, there's a history to that, so that, wouldn't, that doesn't exist in the vacuum. There, there would be a reason why I would have felt that way. Because I know you and because I know your practice, I know how reflective you are. I know that you're really, you're doing, you're doing your thing in relation to this stuff. And it's not, I know that wasn't a pivot. I can vouch that that was not a pivot. Um, but I think it's what, so that kind of, that initial kind of getting my back up or defensiveness that I think I, I would have felt if I'm listening to this without the context of Kieran, that initial feeling, I think, I now have a responsibility to unpack that feeling and to figure out, actually, if I'm asking groups of people to be my allies, to stand in solidarity with me, what then can I, what then must I do to enable that to happen? And what then must they do? And I think there's, there's two conversations there, do you know what I mean? So like you said, you've been able to acknowledge where it comes from, where that defensiveness would come from, or where the kind of willy-nilly, and I think you were, I think you were generous, to be honest. I think you were generous in saying that actually that the young black boys were using that word 
um, because maybe they've experienced. I think that's a generous way. I don't. I actually would say no. Probably they were just being ignorant, and it's been normalised in the black community to say certain things that are derogatory to other other groups. Do you know what I mean? So I think that's my experience. Um, but that being said, like you've been able to kind of again in your experience and through your allyship have been able to kind of use that opportunity to um to open up a wider and more important conversation and I think that I feel I personally as a black woman feel challenged by that model of behavior and practice and I feel that actually okay as where is it possible that you you can do that give people the benefit of the doubt or be be open or use kind of where can you kind of capitalize teachable moments as opposed to just get offended or get your back up or get defensive um, and that's something that definitely came out of the conversation not just the conversation it's something I've been thinking about if I'm honest for a while but I think that the conversation that we had earlier on in the week really brought that home to me and made me think I would like to hear and Jade like tell me like you might want to hear something else that's fair um but I would like to hear a little bit more Kieran just about like your practice I think we skirted around it but I'd like to hear a little bit more about kind of what you do and how you've done it how you've kind of so sensitively got to the position um to occupy the space that you you do within black British culture it starts with youth work and it starts with a certain um attitude towards people in general this is going to sound a bit cliche and deep, but yeah, it's actually real. My earliest memories on this planet are just continually being played black music. Like, my fond comfort zone memories are that, as well as a bunch of, like, other stuff that's tied up in my household and being British Asian, etc. But, like, that is a lifeline for me. Of, it's like, it's never not been, you know, throughout my, all, all, my, all my life, black music or music that comes from black communities in America or, um, or the UK. And so from day one of being a youth worker and from day one of being a student and a whatever, like the most important, one of the most important, if not the most important things to me that I spend most of my time thinking about and doing is rooted in like the, the existence, the success, the complexity of black music. I came into youth work accidentally having endless conversations about music with black young people who I was working with by virtue of just coincidentally being placed in a school which was like 80% black British. So that was the starting point for my youth work and I think that I refined my ability to not just talk about music but branch out from music to understand the impact of social media. Sort of self-identification between black British, African and Caribbean nuances and communities, you know, understanding that, that there's a whole sort of com complex ethical debate about loads of different things in black British music, but also in terms of different parts of London, different parts of the country. Like, there's so many things going on. And I think that I have basically put myself through and, and no, I have no doubt that I've made mistakes along the way and I've been clunky along the way. But by diving into it with that touch point, with that entry point of knowing my music and, and, and loving my music and it being rooted in, in a, a lot of the time in trying to empathise or connect with the Black British experience, that's been, that's been an entry point into me being an effective youth worker, honestly. And there's, that's a, there's a reason now why I founded a charity called Roadworks and I've started Drillosophy, which is all to do with using music to connect with young people. Um, it comes from that 
the origins of that practice. So I, I just wanted to say that because I think it, it is a really important to, to make um, that having like a really effective entry point was it was a was a good way of me doing that as a youth worker. And then just to get into the you know the, the nuts and bolts of how that looks in a session connects to what I was saying just now about you know when the p words been mentioned in front of me. It's like we're all here in this room as equals and we're going to talk very respectfully without jumping down people's throats or without demeaning one another or making any assumptions. And if someone does do that, then they get held to account for it. And that's, I bring that to every single youth group that I run and it has been hundreds of discussion sessions in South London with groups of young people. Um, so my practice in youth work, I feel like that's a kind of nice summary of, of how I, how I go about a lot of the work that I do on the ground in youth work. And then that all bleeds in naturally to, to my writing. So, you know, I've written about drill music and just British rap in general, but then I've also written about like austerity and, and youth violence and knife crime, et cetera, and unpacking like whether that's to, whether that's to do with race or not. Um, as in talking about different areas of those issues from a race lens, from a, um, like socioeconomic inequality lens, different things like that. The work that I do in my youth work, the work, the conversations I'm having now, or the conversations I'm having that are difficult in a youth group, or the conversations I'm having with staff that who are, you know, have been on the front lines for 20 years and school me at stuff, you know, really school me and hold me to account and pressure, like pressure me into making me think, like, actually, what, what stance am I going to take on this? Because I need to have a stance on it. I can't just sit on the fence for it. I need to stand up for something. Having those mentors, having those people around me in youth work means that my writing every sentence every word of you know that article i wrote in gq every sentence every word matters and it matters as much as the conversations i'm having with a group of young people about difficult subjects constantly thinking about respect and constantly thinking about how can i uphold this like that i'm not i'm not i don't really like this idea of me being a teacher or me me standing up here and telling you guys what is and what isn't it's like let's investigate this stuff together and and my writing i think it bleeds into my writing in that like you know i'm i'm discovering these things i'm learning these things so that you as a reader can sort of also learn them with me it's not like me trying to tell too many things it's like really investigative so yeah they go hand in hand um so i think that's a summary of it in the episode that came out last i shared I pleaded and and if I was too emotional that, that in that episode because I'm not really one to plead. <laughs> but I pleaded with people. I said, if you are an ally, or if you're trying to be an ally, I need you. Like I can't escape this conversation. The body that I exist in does not allow me to ex- escape the conversation about equality it is equally important that people that are allies placing themselves in positions to constantly be having that conversation with themselves like there's no holidays there's no break and I think through knowing Kieran it brings me a lot of comfort to see that you're doing that you're putting yourself in my shoes or in the shoes of the, the those people that um, you're representing in your writing in your youth work and yeah man I think it's I think that the way you have encountered or the way that you kind of engage with allyship has encouraged me and has given me a lot of hope 
and it's not even on a on a bum looking thing <laughs> but like on a very genuine like this week I felt a lot of hope just through our conversations seeing the work that you're doing dope and seeing the opportunities that you're bringing to young black men particularly is dope so yeah I think that's kind of my my closing my closing comment I'm very grateful that you've come on and had this conversation with us that means a lot thank you a lot of important things have come out of this conversation I think that the point that you are making Kieran about essentially opening up safe spaces educative spaces for young black boys and girls to also unpack and unpick our stuff and when I say our stuff the stuff between black and brown people um, that goes on on both sides as your your position as an ally slash bridge is really important in furthering allyship holistically. That's what I've gotten out of, yeah, a lot of what you've said. And I do think as well that it is, it's tough. It's probably quite a tough job um, when you said that the boys were talking about going to the P word shop and things like that and that your your brain was exploding when you heard that it's a difficult place to exist in given as you rightly said the colonial hangover and I don't think that it's simplistic for us to try and like I don't think it's simplistic so I think that when we attempt to signpost like why it is so why are the black boys calling the shopkeeper a p-word maybe it's because the shopkeeper made them feel xxx way I think it's really really complex I think that um, even my history, when I think about my family um, and the makeup of Trinidad, um, my my history, my historical experience is very different from somebody that just happens to have um, a shopkeeper who is even from Bangladesh. So not, do you know what I mean? Like it doesn't even make sense for you to be calling the man a P word if you think that that is some shortening of Pakistani. So I think that it's a very complex history and it's a complex relationship. And I think that the work that you're doing is important in, as I previously said, being that palatable bridge, but also deconstructing the things that go on on both sides. I read one of your articles where you were speaking to British South Asian people, mostly because I think that there was somebody that was half Moroccan in the article too. I think that you're doing really important work. I think it is important. I think that people that show up in the world with brown skin um, have a really important and important work to do in this context um, as this agenda as the the conversation is firmly placed on the agenda I think it is really really important um, and big up yourself Kieran for yeah like what what you're doing. No, thank you thanks a lot and thanks for having me in this conversation mirror but what you're both saying in many ways but as what you're saying about this week is very transformative you know like a lot of this stuff I suppose I feel like I'm doing in my work and my practice and my writing my youth work and I've got a lot of the tools to do this stuff well already but they're not explored in any way and they're not refined they're like they exist and I've developed them but they have so much further to go and I think through these conversations I've just on a personal level they're invaluable for me because I think that it's so important to have these conversations and I think that this, this the safe space idea of us figuring out our stuff is is so important and, I, and that's what I'm going to finish on like I think I'm I, I, I always have done and and I'm going to continue to try and do it in fact I made a conscious decision to do it as I told you the other day that in September last year, I wrote a big piece about OFB and about 
Mando K being Mark Duggan's son and went and interviewed him and that being like, almost like me being like, you know what, I've said my piece on drill music now. In terms of writing, I've said my piece and I need to convert this energy into like more on the ground work, which is why I founded Roadworks, my charity. But I've combined that like attempt at humility and attempt at like, I need to platform other people on this issue with a more conscious decision to start writing about British Asian issues, which is why I've then started like, right, I've got more, I've had more pieces come out since then as well that have been on a big scale for GQ about that. You know, that's all me, I think, trying to, trying to conjure, trying to create like a, at least my own strain of that, of that allyship. Um, both in terms of helping other British Asians understand themselves as well as then like creating the bridge um, because I think it's important it's been lost over the years you know um, that that political black identity that that existed in the 70s 80s 90s you know the Southall riots 1979 that my uncles would have been at that was because an Asian man was killed by police 1979 and there were black people and asian people marching in the streets of southall together in the in the days following that and it's like where's that gone? where's that gone and it hasn't gone anywhere there's lots of you know there's lots of people marching together now but like we can't we, we need to remember that like that struggle there's a lot of commonality in that struggle there's a lot of difference but there's, there's lots of commonality and i think yeah I'm, I'm really down to try and explore continue exploring how that can be affected now in like 2020 and it's super important so anyway that's my closing, closing statement. <laughs> but cheers. Can you plug yourself, please, so that I know you do that a million things, but can you just let us know what some of those things are, where people can find you, I, particularly philosophy and what's going on with that as well, please? I founded a, a charity called Roadworks. We use contemporary music culture as a way of teaching uh, young people life skills and philosophy and critical thinking basically and we're trying to make British education more inclusive because it's failing lots of young people right now um, and the recent video series that we put out in response to the pandemic so that young people can access it from their phones and what we're doing is called Drillosophy and it's on Mixtape Madness uh, it's starting to pick up quite a lot of attention and steam now which is cool um, but go and watch it and, and also we've got educational resources that we've created that are free to download on our website roadworksldn.org so you can watch the episodes if you're a carer a teacher a mentor you can watch the episodes and then you can with our resources turn that episode into an entire workshop series for young people or a young person so we've essentially tried to democratize some like of our youth work practice and then yeah otherwise it's uh, the big thing is the book i'm writing my book it's going to come out next summer probably called Cut Short Youth Violence and Loss in the City and it's a, it's a story of the last five years um, told through the eyes of three young men who go, go from being 12, 13 and 14 to being uh, 17, 18, 19 as well as my experience as a youth worker to try and explain basically modern London and what it's like to, to sort of be disenfranchised in modern London. So yeah, those are the two things right now. And where can we find you? Um, well, you can't find me on Twitter right now because I'm going through a moment of like, I need to stay away from that toxic place, if I'm honest. <laughs> so Instagram, Kieran Thapa, my name, in usual circumstances, uh, which I can't predict, Kieran Thapa on Twitter as well. And otherwise, yeah, I think just 
keep your eyes peeled for more roadworks related youth work stuff writing probably in gq and then my book next year which will be hopefully well publicized dope thanks for coming on kieran and thanks for listening guys bye bye I can't come here and die. I can't come here and live. Got all this shit on my mind. Like, what the fuck am I doing? Work ain't paid me in time. My brain just ripping my mood. No two just cut off my life.